Well, church, again, and it's fantastic to see you guys today. Uh, like I said, this is my favorite message of the, of the annual calendar to preach. I look forward to it all the time. To all of our guests today, I just wanted to extend a special welcome to you. And just wanted to say, I know that on a day like Easter, um, a lot of you may be here uh, simply because you're doing a favor for somebody that you love. And um, the church may not really be your thing very much. And just wanted to say, if that's the case for you, uh, regardless of whatever reason you came here today, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, I'm really gr grateful that you chose to worship with us today. And my hope is that, that you would always find Dallas Bible a safe place to be able to come in and to bring up whatever doubts and hangups you may have, whatever questions and concerns that you have, and that you'd find that this is a warm and loving environment to come bring those things. And then in the process of doing that, we'd be able to just point you to Jesus and show you why we believe everything that we believe. And whatever those reasons may be, I'm just glad that you're here. Um, as I said a little bit ago, I always joke with the church that this is our Super Bowl of all Sundays. Um, the reason I joke about that and say that is because the Bible testifies about itself that everything that we do hangs in the balance of what Jesus has done and the fact that the tomb is still empty and a body has never been found. In fact, Paul's going to say this. He's going to say the fact of the resurrection is a matter of first importance. He's going to say if Christ has not actually been raised from the dead, uh, then our preaching is in vain. We're still lost and dead in our sins, and our faith is completely worthless. In other words, church, like this isn't one of those secondary matters. This isn't one of those minor issues we can agree to disagree about and just kind of push to the back of our worship and things like that. Like this is front and center. This is the main issue. This isn't just a fairy tale that we talk about and we pass down to our children in order to help them feel better about themselves and that kind of a thing. Like it's just not, it's just not a metaphor about how to overcome really, really difficult things in our life. Like literally everything that we do hangs in the balance of what Jesus did on that day when he walked out of that tomb alive. Everything we do hangs in this conviction that Jesus really is the Christ, the son of the living God. That he really did condescend from heaven because of his infinite love for all of humanity who was lost and broken because of our sins. And in the middle of that place, God sent his son Jesus to literally take on flesh and to live this sinless life that you and I could not live. And to willingly and on purpose go to the cross to suffer, to bleed, and to die. And to literally and physically three days later walk out of the tomb alive. And what Paul's saying in the Bible here is that if that did not actually happen, then our preaching is in vain. And literally everything we do is meaningless and worthless. Church, what in the world are we singing about if Jesus is not alive today? Church, what in the world are we praising God about if none of what we're talking about today is true? Like, why do we go and do the different things that we do? Why do we send people to our communities and all around the world preaching the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ if he is still buried and in that grave today? Like, what hope do we have to bring to the addict, to the hopeless, to the refugee, to the immigrant, to, the, to, to everyone around us? Like, what hope do we have to bring if Jesus is still in that grave today? Like literally what Paul's saying is that everything that we say, everything that we do, hangs in the balance of what Jesus did that day and whether or not he literally and physically walked out of that tomb alive. Everything we do is completely in vain if none of what we're talking about is true. But here's the beauty of what it continues to say. If it is true, and we're not just singing in vain today, if it's actually true that Jesus walked out of that tomb alive, it's a game changer changes everything because what it means is it's not he's not just a good teacher because church like there's a million great teachers out there there's a lot of great moral people that can tell you how to do some really great things and if Jesus walked out of that tomb alive what it means is he's a little bit more than a great prophet 
And it means that he's a little bit more than just a friend you can add on to your life if you need a little buddy and some companionship from time to time. Because what he's saying is that if, if everything that we're talking about today is completely true, it changes everything about the way that you'll live today. And I love the way that Tim Keller talks about it. He says it like this. He says, everything hangs on Easter. Because if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then you have to accept everything that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why would you worry about anything that he said? Why would we listen to him? What authority would he have? He lived 2,000 years ago. Like, if he's still buried in that grave, why in the world are we learning about life from a guy 2,000 years ago in history? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but it's on whether or not he literally and physically rose from the dead. Church is why we say it's the Super Bowl of all Sundays. I mean, literally everything that we do hangs on the fact of an empty grave, and it's exactly what I want to talk about this morning. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn there, we're going to be in John 20 today, and if you didn't bring it with you, it's no big deal. I'm going to be putting some of these passages up on the screen for us so that it'll be easy for you to follow along with. But what I want to do is I want to take us to this story, this beautiful, beautiful story of a guy named Thomas and how Jesus chooses to engage with him in the middle of his doubt in order to bring him into faith. And so if you have your Bibles and want to turn there, you can go ahead and do it. Um, <clears throat> We're going to, sorry, I've been singing a lot this morning. Um, and those are like scream it out loud songs, right? I could love that. But anyway, this may, may go at some point. Um, we're going to pick it up in verse 19. And so what's happening in the story at this point in time, uh, Jesus has already been raised from the dead. And so back there on Good Friday, he was crucified, dead, and buried. For three days, all of his disciples, his followers, and everybody who knew him, they were in mourning. They were in despair. They thought the whole thing was done. Their Messiah was dead and buried. And that everything that they believed in was gone. They were crushed. Three days later, he walks out of the tomb alive. Uh, Mary Magdalene is one of the first ones there at the tomb. Uh, she sees that the tomb is empty. She comes back out. She also has the unique privilege of being the first one to see the resurrected Jesus Christ. And it's this beautiful scene. She's walking the path. She doesn't recognize that it's actually Jesus immediately. And they're talking, and, and she thinks that he's a gardener. I think that's hilarious. Um, and then all of a sudden, Jesus just says, hey, Mary, Mary. And all of a sudden, like hearing her name and knowing that it's Jesus' voice, everything clicks. And all of a sudden, she just recognizes this is the resurrected Lord. It's he. And so she goes and she tells all the disciples he is alive, he is risen. And they come and run to the grave and they figure out that it's empty too. And so we're going to pick it up in 19. And at this point in time, the disciples and nobody else has seen the resurrected Lord. So here's what it has to say. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, when the, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders... Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm also sending you. Now Thomas, who was also known as Didymus, which is probably why he went by Thomas, um, <laughs> says that he was one of the twelve, but he was not with the disciples when Jesus originally came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and I put my finger where the nails were, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Church, you ever said anything really dumb you wish you could take back? <laughs> you ever posted it online, and you're like, ooh, that's there forever, right? I, this is that moment for Thomas. Uh, because like in the middle of his mistake and this massive denial of Jesus and kind of this doubting and stuff, this is recorded uh, in scripture for the rest of history for everybody to kind of to make fun of and say, like, what's the, what's the nickname that he goes by from here on out? Doubting. doubting Thomas, right? This is the thing that defines him for the rest of his days. He's like, man, I wish I could have that one back. And it's almost not fair, right? 
Because he's not the only one who doubts. We've been there before, right? I mean, you've been there. You've been walking with Jesus, doing this church thing for a little bit, and, and you've noticed that thing inside of you at some point in time where you're kind of like, all right, is, like, is this whole thing real? I mean, is it really worth it for me to stand up for my faith right here, to say no to these things, and to say yes to these things over here? Is this whole thing really legitimate? Like, I'm looking at the news, and I'm seeing these heroes in the faith, and obviously they were completely and totally frauds. Like, is this whole thing real? I mean, you've been there before you've asked that question. Maybe you're a cynic and you come in and you're like, okay, I never, I never believed that in the first place. Have you ever doubted your doubts? I mean, we, we know what doubt's like. It's not just Thomas here. John the Baptist had the same thing. John the Baptist, one of the, the greatest prophets to ever live, cousin of Jesus. You remember this scene? Like, he's, he's seeing Jesus and everything, and he's going, okay, well, this isn't exactly what I was expecting. And he sends word back to Jesus. He's like, all right, I, I want to make sure we're on the same page. And you're like, you're really the Messiah, right? Jesus is like, yeah, 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 we're on the same page here. We're, we're, on the same, we're going the same direction. Like Job is 37 chapters of Job, pretty much doubting the goodness of God. Doubts everywhere. Even here in the, immediately after the resurrection, in Matthew 28, 16, it's going to say that the other 11 disciples, is just after the resurrection, the other 11 disciples, they went to the mountain Jesus told them to go. And it says that when they saw him, some immediately worshiped, but some still doubted. In other words, church, like it's not just Thomas, Right? Like even, even the other disciples there, uh, some of them immediately saw him. Uh, they began to worship. And then others were sitting there kind of going, I don't know what we're doing. I'm singing a bunch of songs. Uh, he, stand, like he was dead. He was crucified, dead, and buried. I don't know what to make of this whole thing. It doesn't happen very often. He's standing right here in front of me. What am I touching? What am I looking at? Who am I talking to? Some of them still doubt it. But like, that's the nature of how faith and doubt works though, right? I mean, you'd notice again, again around people that you know and things like that, like, there's some of us that seem to, to come to faith really, really easy. I mean, it seems like some kids, they're born, they jump out of the womb, and the first words are like, praise Jesus, right? <laughs> I mean, faith is the easiest thing in the world. They could be watching the Cowboys game, and they're like, hey, God is good. <laughs> you know, and, you know, they make it to the playoffs, and they're like, ah, he's supernatural and miraculous, right? <laughs> make it to the Super Bowl. I mean, they become missionaries, right, at that point. <laughs> like, for some of us, like, faith is just this really, really easy thing you can walk into, and then... For others of us, you could be staring at the resurrected Christ and you're sitting there kind of going, I, I don't know what we're doing in this thing. I mean, I was, I was reading this blog. It was called Why I Don't Believe in God Anymore, right? You, obviously, you can see that's going to pique my interest. And I'm reading this thing and, and checking out a number of the different things that people wrote in and talked about. But I, there was one that I thought was absolutely fascinating. This one guy wrote in and said, basically, here it is. I feel that religion outgrew its usefulness when science became accurate, as accurate as it is today. And so do many other people my age. Personally, I'll never believe in anything that I can't see. I'll never have true faith in anything. Anyone ever maybe feel that yourself? You're kind of that logical, linear science guy. I need to see it and feel it. I, I'm not gullible, right? I'm not that person that just easily believes things. Anybody know anybody maybe in that camp a little bit that's like, hey, I want to see, touch, taste, feel, then I'll actually believe. I'm a rational kind of a person. Another person wrote in and just put this quote from the Buddha, doubt everything and find your own light. Doubt everything and find your own light. You hear that around today? Maybe you've seen the t-shirt, question everything. It is the mantra of postmodernism today, that you would doubt everything, that you would find your own light because truth is something that's discoverable within you. It's not something objective and outside of you that you go and surrender to. Another, other people wrote in a number of different things, and it's the traditional things we've talked about in the past few weeks, the problem of pain and evil in this world. How in the world can a good and holy God 
allow so much suffering and so much pain and so much agony to continue to persist? And even on a more personal level, how in the world can a good and holy God who's supposed to love me, how can he allow those things, this thing that's taking place in my life, how can he allow this to take place in my life? I'm, I, I, I doubt that it's all true. Other people wrote in, and it's about the hypocrisy of the church. It's exactly what we talked about just a little bit ago. They're reading the headlines, all the abuse, all the, the fakeness, all the horrific things that people in Christian ministry and positions of leadership have done under the banner of Jesus Christ. And they're simply saying, okay, like if that guy was a fraud and that guy was a fraud and that girl's a fraud and all these different people are frauds and my neighbor's a fraud because she claims that she's a believer, but I know she does all these things. And my coworker and my family member, they're believers, but I rose up in this house and, and I know what took place behind those doors. And I know that all those different people are fraud. Like there's no way that this whole Christian gospel is actually true. There's no way that Christ can actually be raised from the dead. Church, the fact of the matter is it's not just Thomas. And it's not just 2,000 years ago. And it's not just distant and outside these walls. These are the legitimate doubts and concerns that many of us have brought into this room today. And what I want you to see is I want you to see the heart of Jesus in this matter because the way that he engages Thomas's doubt right here in the middle of his doubts is one of the most beautiful scenes that you're going to see in all of Scripture. Check this out in verse 26. Here's what he says. A week later, I don't know why he made Thomas wait a week. Maybe he's just a prank. He enjoys that. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. But stop doubting and believe. Some of you need to see this right now. That he's not angry at Thomas's doubt. Jesus doesn't run from your questions. He doesn't run from the legitimate things that are going on inside of your head. He's not angry. He's not rebuking him. He's not rebuking the other disciples because they weren't as faithful as Mary Magdalene and so many of the ladies that were there with Jesus the entire time. He's not saying, hey, why don't you look at these ladies and learn a few things? He's not rebuking them angry, put out or anything like that. He just simply comes before Thomas and says, Thomas, I'm here in the middle of your doubt. I see your questions. You need to touch my side. Come and touch my side. You need to come and you need to look at these nail scars in my hands. Like I'm inviting you to come and to look at these nail scars in my hands. You need to examine the evidence surrounding my life just a little bit more. Like you're invited to come and to examine the evidence that is surrounding my life just a little bit more. I mean, church, we, we understand that, that doubt and faith are two sides of the exact same coin, right? I mean, if, if you're able to doubt, then you're able to have faith. Right, Webster's going to define that doubt as this. Check this out. Um, doubt is a lack of confidence in someone or something. You want to know how he defines faith? Faith is total and complete confidence in someone or something. Church, the reality is, like, if you're able to doubt, then you're able to walk by faith. If you're able to live as a cynic, you're able to walk by faith. If you're able to question and doubt everything that's out there, you're able to be a person of faith because all doubt is, is faith expressed in something different than what you're being asked to believe in right in that moment. It's exactly why Rick Warren is going to say that every single one of us, whether we admit it or not, we all walk by faith. Because none of us are able to scientifically prove what may be on the other side of glory over here. Every single one of us walk by faith. Some of us are betting on morality in order to save us in the end. Some of us are betting on Allah. Unitarians are betting that everyone's right about God and the only thing that matters is love. 
agnostics are betting that if God does exist and he really doesn't care what you do or what you believe, postmodernists are, bet, are betting that truth, if truth does exist and it exists within you, it's something subjective inside you to discover, not something objective and outside of you that you go and surrender to. Atheists are betting there's absolutely nothing in the end, and Christians are betting all on Jesus, that he really did live and die, that he really did three days later walk out of that tomb alive. But the point of the matter is that every single one of us end up walking by faith and betting our lives on something. And what Jesus is saying right here is that your faith, whatever that may be right now, it does not have to be blind. It can actually be a reasonable faith. It does not have to be something that you try to create inside of you and, and, and discover for yourself. It can actually have substance behind that because the beautiful thing about this Easter story is that it's actually history and it's not this fairy tale that we pass down from child to child to child, from generation to the next. It's actually history. It's, there's eyewitness testimony of a person in history because he has given us the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He has given us God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, eyewitness testimony of people who are followers and people who are not followers of his perfect life, death, and resurrection. And the reality is that there is a tomb that is still empty and a body that has never been discovered. Church, like what in the world do you do with the fact of the empty tomb? I mean, Jesus is standing here in Thomas, and he's saying, hey, I see your doubts, and I'm asking, you are willing, you are, come, look at me, examine me. Look at the nail scars on my hand. Look at the empty tomb. Look at the body that's never been discovered. Ask your questions, but don't sit there and continue in your doubt. Don't doubt anymore, but believe. Church, what in the world do we do with the empty tomb? Like Christianity is the easiest thing in the world to crush and, and, and to label a lie. All you have to do is discover a body or else a reasonable explanation for what happened that day. I mean, the fact of the matter is the most, the most uh, motivated government in the world, they could not do that. The Roman guards that were there that day, whose job it was to protect that grave from people destroying it, like they could not come up with a good explanation. The best that they could come up with was, okay, well, we were taking a nap that night, and the disciples, they slipped in and they stole the body. Literally, that's the best explanation that they could come up with. We read about it in Matthew 28. It says that when the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Can you imagine being a guard that day? Your whole job is to protect that grave so that nothing happens to that body, so that nobody comes in and steals it, so that nothing can be said or done. And then they're walking their tail between their legs the next few days and coming back and they're like, uh, 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 we got to come up with something here. And they come back and they devise the plan and it says in 12, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money. Verse 13 is telling them, you were to say his disciples came during the night and they stole him away while we were sleeping. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. In other words, we won't kill you because of your incompetence. Verse 15, so the soldiers took the money and they did as they were instructed. And this story is the one that has been widely circulated today. In other words, church, like that is the best that they could come up with. Literally, these trained Roman soldiers whose only job was to protect the tomb from being robbed, they were sleeping on the job. And when they were sleeping on the job, these disciples, a couple fishermen and a tax collector, like they happened to come in and steal this body while they were taking a sleep. These disciples who were mourning, just in the, in the pit of depression just three days earlier, all of a sudden they're able to come, devise this plan, and steal this body while they're taking a nap. Honestly, can we just think about that for a second? I mean, somehow these disciples are able to come and, and they're able to move a giant boulder that took multiple people to put there in the first place. And they're able to move this giant boulder without waking the sleeping Roman guards who are right next to that boulder, without waking them up. And they're able to go in there and steal this body 
and come back out all the while. I don't know if they took Ambien that night or what, but like they're just out and they don't wake up. They don't understand anything that's going on. Can you imagine that? On top of that, every single gospel narrative is going to say that when they discover the tomb is empty that day, they walk inside and they're going to discover that the linens that were there wrapping the body of Jesus, they're neatly folded in the tomb that day. Church, let me ask you this question. When have you ever seen a man neatly fold anything in their life? Like that's the second miracle happening that day, right? Like it's just neatly folded in place right there in the thing. Who does that? I mean, who, let me ask you this. Like if you're stealing a body and you're trying to, like who's going to take the time to unwrap this body, a dead body that's been rotting for three days, who's going to take time to unwrap it, much less fold it? Do you think that was John's responsibility? Hey, John, I need you to fold this thing. And we need to really hurry and be really, really quiet because we've got trained Roman soldiers on the other side of this rock that are going to kill us if they discover us. Like, that's what's going on. Church, honestly, can you imagine what happened that day? Does that, does that even make sense? Can you imagine how much faith you have to believe to believe that story? It doesn't make sense. On top of that, church, what's the motivation behind this? Why in the world would the disciples and the apostles do that? Well, a lot of us want to believe, okay, well, it's because they wanted, they wanted power. They wanted authority. They wanted to control people and create this world religion. In other words, they're going to elevate themselves and just put everyone else underneath their spell and their control. You know, we, we don't want people to have fun, so we're going to throw out all these rules and restrictions and things like that. Problem is, none of those things happen for them. I mean, read, check this out. This is taken from the second century. This is from a, a Roman spy writing a letter back to the Roman emperor Diognetus, okay? Not a Christian document. This is from a Roman spy meant to spy upon the early church in the first century about what's taking place so that the Romans know what's, what's happening. Not a, not a Christian account of what's taking place. Here's what he describes that he sees in the first century church. He says that they marry like everyone else. They beget children, but they don't expose them after they're born. In other words, they value all human life. They have a common table, but they don't have a common bed. In other words, they're sexually very conservative. Like, is that not, like, if you're, if you're, a, uh, if you're starting a cult, what, what do a lot of cult leaders want? They want that. They don't want sexually conservative people. They have a common table, but they have no common bed. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but through their way of life, they surpass these laws. They love all people, even the people that are trying to kill them and take their lives. And they're persecuted by all people. They are as poor as beggars, and yet they make many people rich. In other words, these are people that had absolutely nothing. And what little that they had, they sold it, they shared it, they gave it around to other people so that people would not be without anything. They were abused, and yet they bless. They are assaulted, and yet it is they who show respect. Doing good, they are sentenced like evildoers. Church, like that's what took place in the first century. Non-Christian account of what we are seeing in the early church among the disciples and among the apostles. Church, like that's not normative if you're after power and authority and control. In fact, Paul's going to say this. He's going to say, God appointed we apostles to be the lowest of the low, to have the least amount of power, to be the most despised, to not preach in $3,500 shoes, to not go buying all these mansions and planes and all these things for church and things of that nature, so that we can demonstrate that our hope is not in this life, but it's in the resurrection that's still to come. Church, like, that's not what you do if power is your goal. Uh, beyond that, like, you don't preach a message of grace if your goal is to control and to, to, to bring people to subjection to your authority. Uh, you don't say things like, it is by God's grace that you're saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a free gift of God so that none of us are able to boast. Like, if my desire is to boast, I'm not preaching that, that gospel. 
If my desire is for me to be lifted up high and mighty above everybody else, I am not preaching. It is by God's grace that you are saved, meaning every single one of us are on the exact same plane before a holy God, lost and dead in our sins. And in the middle of that place, God in his infinite love sent Jesus so much so that, that he loved you so much that he gave his only son that he, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That message does not, ma- does not make sense if power and authority is, is, is my goal. Church, every single one of the disciples and every single one of the apostles will end up giving their life for the sake of this message that Jesus really did conquer sin and death. Peter would end up being crucified upside down. Weeks before, he would watch his own wife also be crucified. Can you imagine watching the one that you love be crucified in front of your eyes? And the whole time they're saying, if you will recant, pull back your story, you'll be able to live. Andrew went to modern-day Soviet Union where he was also crucified. Philip went to North Africa where he was arrested and cruelly put to death. Even Thomas, doubting Thomas right here, the one that's saying, hey, I'm not going to believe unless you prove it to me. Even Thomas, something happens that day. He moves on from that day. He goes to India and he starts preaching the gospel. He's a faithful missionary there for a number of years until he is martyred by a militant Hindu group somewhere in southern India. And church, here's the thing. Like, Granted, like some people will suffer a martyr's death. There's a lot of different martyrs that are out there, but not for something that you know is a lie. Every single one of these disciples and these apostles, they know exactly what happened that day. They were there at the foot of the cross. They walked with him in those years of ministry right beforehand. They mourned on Good Friday. They were there at the empty tomb. They saw the resurrected Jesus, and every single one of them is going to tell the exact same story, and they're going to give everything for the sake of the story. Church, like, what in the world do you do with the empty tomb? What's the explanation? I mean, some people honestly think that the whole thing was a dream or hallucination, right? Like we just all dreamed the whole thing up. Maybe it wasn't a physical, literal resurrection. Maybe it was just a spiritual Jesus. And they just kind of all saw this little hologram out there. Uh, the technology wasn't out there at the time. Meanwhile, scripture, the problem with that is that Scripture is going to say that nearly 500 different witnesses uh, uh, people, uh, all saw the exact same thing. Paul's going to testify it wasn't just the disciples and the apostles, but there were over 500 witnesses in the first century that all saw and witnessed the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Beyond that, like people don't dream and group, like no one shares the same dreams. You don't all hallucinate and try to see the same things. People tried yesterday on 420. It doesn't work, (laughs) right? It doesn't work. You don't all dream and hallucinate the exact same thing. I mean, some people think that, okay, well, maybe he wasn't literally dead. Maybe he was only mostly dead, right? Princess Bride, right? Do you know that one? He's just mostly dead. He wasn't quite dead. He's just mostly dead, right? So according to this theory, uh, just notice how much faith it takes to believe this. Can, you, can we do that? I mean, here's the, here's the theory. After Jesus was beaten and tortured to within inches of his life by trained Roman executioners who did this all the time and were excellent at what they did, after he was bore, beaten and tortured within inches of his life, after he hung upon a cross for hours where he slowly suffocated to death, after he was stabbed in the side, with a spear in order to confirm that he was dead by, again, professional Roman executioners. After his body was wrapped in linen and buried in a tomb, somehow three days later, with no food or water, Jesus is actually able to stand up, unwrap all of his linens, neatly folded inside of the tomb, and somehow he's able to have enough strength to be able to roll away this massive stone which took multiple men to be able to put there in the first place, And then he's able to come and somehow Chuck Norris' strength like overcome these Roman executioners that are outside watching this thing all night long to make sure that nothing takes place. 
And then he's able to go and he's able to convince all of his disciples, all of his apostles and early followers to play the greatest hoax on the world that, this, that the world has ever seen. To come up with this lie and to spread this lie that he is the resurrected Jesus Christ who has the power over sin and death, who has the ability to forgive us all of our sins. Meanwhile, like no one in the first century is telling this story at all. Church, like something happened that day. So what in the world do you do with the empty tomb? And there's a beautiful passage, Acts chapter 5, I love this. Um, The Roman government is debating about what to do with the apostles who are preaching the resurrection. Check this out. Some of them want them in prison. Some of them want these guys dead because they don't like this whole, hey, Jesus is alive and he's resurrected from the dead. There's a Pharisee named Gamaliel. He stands up, and I want you to notice what he says here. He says this in Acts 5, verse 35. Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But here it is. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census, and he drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. In other words, what he's saying here is like, guys, this isn't the first time this has happened. This isn't the first time someone rose up and claimed that he was Messiah. This isn't the first time that he had a group of followers, and that people were saying, hey, this guy over here is the promised Messiah. This happened all the time. In fact, Wikipedia is going to say that there were about 80 different people uh, within a few hundred years of the time of Christ that were all claiming this thing that I am the promised Messiah. And they all had followers saying, you know what, that's the Messiah right over there. But here's what he's saying. He's saying that when those people passed away, so did their entire movement. That's the one common thing. No one survived their death. And so here's what he says. He says this. He says, so in this present case, I say to you, stay away from these men. In other words, just leave them alone. Leave them alone, for if this plan or action is of men, it's going to be overthrown. They're going to pass away. All their followers are going to die off, um, and, and, the, and, and their message is going to just, just go away. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may be found fighting against God. Church, let me ask you this question. Did the message ever die out? Like, has the message ever, ever died out? Are, are you kidding me? Literally three days prior, they are, they are in the height of their depression. They are mourning the loss of their Messiah and their Savior. Three days later, there's a complete 180. They go from mourning and grieving, hiding in their shame, to full of the Holy Spirit, full of boldness. And this is the crew that God uses to bring about the greatest revival that the world has ever seen. Church, what in the world happened that day? What in the world do we do with the empty tomb? Like literally everything changes that day. Then Jesus walks out of the tomb alive and he stands before Thomas and the disciples and he says, hey, I see your doubts. And in the middle of your doubt, I'm inviting you to come and to examine my life. Examine everything there is about me. Check out the nail scars on my hands. Look at the wounds in my feet. Look at the wounds in my side. Examine the empty grave and stop doubting and believe. Church, what in the world do you do with the evidence of the resurrected Jesus Christ? Like, honestly, like, what would you do if you were there that day? You walked into the tomb, and you saw that it was empty. You were Mary Magdalene that day, and you came there expecting to just to leave a gift and to leave some, uh, some presents that are there, and, and all of a sudden, it's just gone, and it's empty. Like, what would you do if you're Thomas, and you got to literally touch his nail-scarred hands? I mean, literally, in, in verse 28, Thomas is standing before the resurrected Jesus, and all of a sudden, just in an, in an instant, all of that doubt just starts turning into faith. I mean, he's he's standing before the resurrected Jesus and he's looking at his nail-scarred hands and everything that's true about what's happening in front of him and he just looks at him and he says, my Lord and my God. Church, what other kind of response is there in that moment? But just bow down and cry out, my Lord and my God, that's who you are. 
I mean, what, does it even make sense? My teacher? My teacher, you're, I, man, I love those morals. Keep going on the Ten Commandments. Like, does it even make sense in that moment? Man, you're a great prophet. Tell me more about this God. Like, none of, nothing else makes sense except, except to bow at the foot of the cross or the, bow at the, the, the empty tomb and to say, my Lord and my God. Paul's going to say he was delivered over to death for our sins, but he was raised to life for our justification. In other words, church, like none of what happened to Jesus was by accident. Nothing took him off guard. That He was not a victim of an angry mob. He went to the cross willingly as a substitute for you and me that our sins could be forgiven because that's what sin demands. But it says here, Paul's going to say it in Romans 4, he's going to say he was raised to life for our justification because that's what Christ's grace demands. In other words, because of what God has done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you and I can actually be declared righteous before a holy God. We could be approved before a holy God. And it's not because, hey, he's given us this moral law that we can dominate and we can understand a little bit better than other people can. It's not because you've cleaned yourself up well enough. It's simply because God and his infinite love sent his one and only holy and righteous son to come and to live the sinless life that we could not live. And he willingly went to the cross to suffer, to bleed, and to die as a substitute for you. And then three days later, he walked out of that grave alive, proving that he is who he says that he is and proving that he really does have power over sin and death. And the word of God says that if you will simply come to him in genuine faith, repenting of your sin, that he will give you his righteousness. So we will be justified before a holy God and declared righteous, not because we are, not because we've cleaned ourselves up, not because we figured it all out, simply because God is, and that's what he gifts any and all who will simply come to him in genuine faith. Church, who do you say that he is? What do you do with the facts of the empty tomb? I'll never forget an interaction I had with a, with a guy. We were over in the apartment complex next door a little while ago, and we were praying with people and sharing the gospel with a few, and this guy comes up, and he's a Muslim guy. He wants to ask me a lot of questions about our faith, and I love talking with Muslims. They, they're very open to talking about matters of God. And he comes up, and he wants to ask me the question. He says, why are you Christians so convinced that Jesus really is God in flesh? And I was like, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> and we sat down, and I'll never forget the conversation that day. We just opened up God's word, and we just started talking about a lot of these different things we've been talking about. Like, what do you do with the empty tomb? What do you think happened that day? What do, you deal with the, what do you do with the history of what took place that day? The massive revival that has swept the world and continues to sweep the world, the world to this day. And we just started going through all these different things. And finally, we kind of wrap up our conversation. He just kind of looks there and he just starts nodding. He's like, whoa, whoa. It's like, yeah, whoa. He's like, that's pretty strong, man. It's like, yeah, it's pretty strong. And I asked him, I said, I, I was like, I can see that something's going on inside of you. Like, what's, what is it that's keeping you from saying yes to Jesus and giving your life to him? And he thought about it for a second, and he just looks at me, and he goes, bro, you don't, you don't understand what that would mean for me. I would lose my family. I would lose my standing. And he goes, literally everything about my life would change. And he's absolutely right, it would. I love the way Wolfhart Pannenberg, he's a German theologian, he put it like this. He said, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it's a very unusual event. Yeah, it is. And second, if you believe that it really happened, it would change everything about the way that you live. Not 
in order to gain salvation, but simply because you've now been saved. Maybe that's not your issue. Maybe your issue isn't, hey, I, I'm not willing to let go of my life and give it over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe your, your issue is a little bit different. Maybe it's kind of like the guy I was interacting with over in Oaklawn one day. We started talking about the gospel, and I started showing him what Jesus has done on their, his behalf. We started talking about the forgiveness of sins, and all of a sudden in the middle of this conversation, he breaks down like a child, and he starts weeping, and he simply just says, but you don't understand the things that I've done. You don't know the things that I've done in my past. And maybe that's your question. Maybe your question is not so much a, hey, um, is it literally true? Uh, or maybe it's not a, hey, I don't want to give up my life and I don't want things to change in my life. But maybe you're sitting here and you're kind of going, okay, but you don't understand the things in my life. You don't understand what took place in my college days. You don't know what happened last night in the club and everything else. Church, the beauty of grace is that you simply cannot out God's grace. You know how we know that? People have been trying forever. I mean, literally, we've been trying and trying and trying. And, uh, the testimony of Scripture from beginning to end is that like, Jesus, he just, he just keeps saving people. He just keeps jumping in and just saying, I see you in the middle of your sin, and I love you. I love you, I love you. Like he's that mom and dad that just kisses on their toddler over and over again, sort of. I mean, people keep trying to out him over and over and over and over again, like from beginning to end, and, and God just keeps intervening and saying, hey, I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. I know that most humans would be done with you. I know your parents were done with you and that you were unlovable to them. I'm not done with you because you're not unlovable to me. And I know that everyone else would have given up, but like I, I haven't given up. And I know that you're trying to run as fast as you can from my presence, but guess what? I'm so much faster than you. I'm so much faster than you. Like Jonah tried to run and it didn't work out well for him. Don't try that. I mean, literally, King David was an adulterer who had his friend killed in order to be with his wife. And, and God just, he saves him. And he just redeems his entire story and he goes on to become like the most, most faithful king in Israel's history and a man who's defined as, as one after God's own heart. It doesn't make sense. Like Paul's gonna say he's the worst of sinners and he's not exaggerating when he says that. Like he was literally a, a murderer of Christians before that time on the way to Damascus when God and in his infinite love decides to reveal the resurrected Christ to him. All of a sudden he's blinded and in a moment he goes from like breathing fire and murdering the early believers in, in the first century church and all of a sudden he goes and becomes the most faithful missionary that we have on record. He ends up writing nearly half the New Testament. I mean, people have been trying to run from him forever and he just runs faster and faster and faster and he keeps saving them and redeeming them and turning their lives around and then using them for his glory. Peter denies that he even knows who he is. He just bails that night. I have no idea who this guy is. I mean, literally, Thomas is sitting there going, yeah, I'm out on this guy. I'm not, I'm, I will not believe unless I touch, see, taste, feel, whatever it may be. Mary Magdalene. It says Mary Magdalene, the first one at the tomb, the first one to see the resurrected Christ. It says that the first time she meets Jesus, she was possessed by seven different demons. You know what that's called? It's called baggage. It's called a past. It's called a past that I wish I could forget and get over and never do again. And the word of God just says that Jesus looked at her and he called her by name and he touched her and he healed her 
And the demons fled, and Mary would go on to be one of the most faithful followers of Jesus Christ ever. So, like, like that's just what he does. You just cannot outsend God's grace. And some of you are sitting there going, I've been trying a long, long time, and you just can't do it. Because we've got an entire book full of stories of people that have been trying to do it. And he just jumps right in and he says, I still love you. And I still sent my son Jesus to suffer, bleed, and die, and raise again from that, from that grave for you that your sins can be forgiven and you can be completely wiped clean. Church, what do you do with the empty tomb? Who do you say that Jesus is? What do you do with the Easter story? Because it's bigger than bunnies and eggs and, and all the fun stuff that we do today. Like, what do you do with this story? Every year at this time, I come back and I want to remind our church, I want to leave us with this, that there's a number of different facts that scholars of all different faiths all believe are true about Jesus. Meaning this isn't just the Christian story that I want to tell here. It's not just the Bible's testimony about itself. But literally, scholars of all faiths believe that these things are true about Jesus. It's what so many people are going to say. It's evidence that demands a verdict. Number one is that Jesus was a literal, physical, historic man who lived a virtuous life during the time of Tiberius Caesar. His reputation was that he was at least a great teacher and a miracle worker who accomplished amazing things that people were not able to explain naturally. He had a brother named James who was not a believer in the deity of Jesus Christ until after the resurrection. Can you just think about that one for a second? Like, what would it take for you to convince your brother that you were the Savior? <laughs> I've tried that a lot before. This hasn't worked well. James was not a believer in the deity of Jesus Christ until after the resurrection. And he also would go on and he would give his life for that exact same message. Hundreds who knew and followed Jesus claimed that he was the Messiah during and after his life. In other words, that message never died off after Jesus was crucified. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate on the eve of the Jewish Passover because he claimed that he was the Messiah. In other words, don't believe what people are saying about, hey, Jesus never claimed he was the Messiah. He was crucified because he was claiming he was the Messiah and everybody else was claiming the exact same thing, okay? Don't slip away in that, please. Um, darkness, get this, darkness fell over the earth and an earthquake occurred roughly at noon when Jesus breathed his last. Okay, coincidence? You know how like schools are now saying, hey, we're going to be taking off Friday and Monday, but hey, it has nothing to do with Easter. You're like, that's a, that's a weird coincidence, right? Okay, literally at noon that day as Jesus breathed his last, darkness fell over the earth. There was a massive earthquake. They're also going to agree that the veil that was in the temple which separated the Holy of Holies, the place of God, from the holy place was torn in two from top to bottom, meaning it wasn't a priest that was down there kind of starting it down at the bottom and then ripping it from the ground up. As Jesus breathed his last, that veil, which was three inches thick, 60 feet high, was torn in two from top to bottom, which we know signifies that you and I now have access to the Holy of Holies through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Scholars of all faiths don't agree on that last part, but I think they should. His disciples were devastated and depressed when he was crucified. In other words, they're not out there scheming and plotting. They're not out there like so jacked up about this new revolution they're about to start. Jesus was buried in a tomb by an unbelieving Jew named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was sort of this Jewish Supreme Court, meaning that this wasn't a conspiracy. He wasn't a friend of the disciples or the apostles. They weren't like buddy-buddy and saying, hey, we need you to do this tomb thing here, and we're going to go in there, and there's a trap door down here, and we're going to figure it all out. 
Roman guards protected the grave that night. Three days later, the tomb was empty. No body was ever found. The disciples did a complete 180 in their demeanor. They went from dead and depressed to all of a sudden filled with life, preaching this message that he was actually alive. They claimed that he rose from the dead. The common day of worship moved from Saturday to Sunday in recognition of the resurrection. In other words, so many different people at that exact same time were saying, hey, this is so significant and this is so true because 500 other people were all saying the exact same story. This is such a significant event that we are moving the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. They spent the rest of their lives spreading that message and every single one of them would die for that message. Chuck Colson, I love how he talks about this. Chuck Colson of Watergate, that Chuck Colson. He's, here's what he says. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they could not keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me the 12 apostles were able to keep a lie for 40 years? It's absolutely insane. Nearly 500 people gave testimony to the exact same story immediately after his resurrection. Church, who do, you, who do you say that Jesus is, honestly? What do you do with the fact of the resurrection, the fact of the empty tomb? Anne Rice, author of the famous vampire stories, famous agnostic, uh, previous atheist turned agnostic, not anymore. Here's what she has to say. She wrote a book called Christ the Lord, How Did a Group of Jewish Peasants Launch the Greatest Religious Movement in History? Invite everybody to ask that question at some point. Here's what she said. Christianity achieved what it did because Jesus rose from the dead. It was the fact of the resurrection that sent the apostles out into the world with a force necessary to create Christianity. Nothing else could have done it except for that. It's not a fairy tale that we pass down to our kids. We're not singing empty songs. Like there's joy. There's celebration. Because what we sing about and talk about happened. God in his infinite love created everything that he is and said that it was good. And we came along in Genesis chapter 3 and we messed it all up. We brought sin into the world, fractured our relationship with him, broke everything around us. It is the reason for the problem of pain in the world today. But the beauty of the gospel is that God in his infinite love did not stay far away. He didn't stay distant he wasn't cold in his affections and far away. That in his infinite love, he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to condescend from heaven and to take on flesh and to live this sinless, holy life that you and I were not able to live. And he willingly went to the cross, knowing what was coming his way. And he suffered and he bled and he died as a substitute for you and for me because that's what our sin demands. And the beauty of Easter is that three days later, he walked out of that tomb alive, proving that he is the son of God, that he is the prince of all peace, that he is the king of all kings. He is the alpha, the omega. He is the son of God. He is the one who has power over sin and death in your life. And he offers us this gift. And it's called grace. And he says, I know that you've been trying to outrun my grace. You can't do it, so stop trying. And he offers this gift of grace, total and complete Forgiveness, the filling of the Holy Spirit, right standing before a holy God. And he offers it as a gift to any and all who would simply say yes by faith 
to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If anyone would confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. Church, what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with the empty tomb? 